from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. In our third and final conversation about Gerald Horn's new book, Revolting Capital, we discuss Washington, D.C.'s April 1968 revolt, which one study said forever changed the trajectory of the city. Black people were probably more armed then than they are now. Recall that after 1968, you had serious attempts at gun control in Congress, specifically and precisely because it was targeted at the fact that Black people were seen as vectors of controlling a significant arsenal. And a view from a movement of young Filipino activists recently arrested after protesting a visit to Washington by Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos. What came out of those meetings were also stronger military presence in the Philippines that will really be a detriment to the land, the resources, and our people. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, we're excited to get to part three of our discussion with Gerald Horn about his new book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. First, some headlines. Out of a $1.8 trillion federal discretionary budget, the U.S. spent $1.1 trillion, or 62% of that budget, on militarism and war, according to a new report released by the National Priorities Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. Quote, threats to cut spending for vital domestic programs have featured prominently in the debt ceiling debate in recent weeks, but spending on militarism has been almost entirely exempt from the discussion. Meanwhile, clawing back failed military, homeland security, and law enforcement spending could instead fund programs and measures to address the true needs of American communities, end quote, the group said. Other report findings include less than $2 out of every $5 in federal discretionary spending was available to fund investment in people and communities. The U.S. spent $16 on the military and war for every $1 that was spent on diplomacy and humanitarian foreign aid. Quote, spending on militarism takes up a majority of the federal discretionary budget, and it has grown faster than all other spending. If we keep up these patterns, we are hurtling toward a future where we can't afford the basics of a civilized society. End quote, she said. According to Ryan Grimm of The Intercept, the U.S. is slow-walking peace negotiations in Yemen and effectively pushing for a resumption of the war. Grimm wrote this week, quote, Everybody else directly or indirectly involved, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, the Houthis, China, Oman, Qatar, Jordan, etc., appears to want to put the war behind them. A ceasefire has held for more than a year, and peace talks are advancing with real momentum, including prisoner exchanges and other positive expressions of diplomacy. Yet the U.S. appears very much not to want the war to end. end quote. Grimm added that the U.S. may want its proxies in the near genocidal conflict to be in a better position to control the strategically positioned Yemeni coastline. According to a U.N. report, an estimated 377,000 Yemenis had died in the U.S.-Saudi war on their country by the end of 2021. 
and roughly 70% of these deaths were children under age 5. Climate action advocates are alarmed over a reported deal that will make modest changes to the 1970 National Environmental Policy Act, which requires the federal government to analyze the environmental impact of new highways, pipelines, and other infrastructure projects. The Washington Post is reporting that the deal is being offered to House Republicans in order to secure their agreement on raising the U.S. debt ceiling and avoid catastrophic default and the U.S. government running out of money to pay its bills on June 1st. In response to the Post reporting, Friends of the Earth, Government and Political Affairs Director Ariel Mojer said that, quote, once again, lawmakers are expected to make the unconscionable decision to tack unpopular and environmentally harmful policies onto a must-pass bill. This deal will put communities already suffering from environmental racism at further risk by gutting essential laws, end quote, she said. Here in D.C., the historically black Ivy City neighborhood is fighting what they say is a relic of environmental racism. The National Engineering Products Company, which manufactures industrial-grade sealants for the military, amongst other contracts, has operated in the community for nearly 100 years using toxic, flammable, and cancer-causing chemicals, which can emit a burning tar stench throughout the community. Working with a group in Power, D.C., IVC residents are mounting a petition campaign to force National Engineering Products to shut down. At a recent forum on environmental justice, I spoke to Sabrina Rhodes, ANC Commissioner for Ivy City and an organizer with Empower DC. What I was trying to capture today is make sure that we get attention to our community that's suffering at the hands of a toxic, polluting chemical plant. And they have been poisoning us. They've been there since 1930 with no air permit. And for us to be fighting for clean air, clean water, and clean uh, soil and a clean community, um, that's why I'm here, to bring attention to our struggle and our fight. Yeah. I mean, it sounds really frustrating because the it's almost like they have a right to be there and they have a right to pollute, yet that is counter to all the current laws. So, so where do things stand? in terms of who's fighting for you, who's who's fighting with you, and what's the chance in the timeline for getting this changed? Well, of course, Empower D.C. is in Ivy City for life. And so we're working along with EPA to make sure that they understand that we do not want that chemical plant there. We have some people that are fighting and agreeing with us, but it's the bureaucracy, it's the red tape, it's the laws that are put in place that are stopping in marginalized communities, black and brown communities, from fighting for their rights and for them to stand. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and so we don't know exactly as far as the political aspect of it, who's really on our side. Rhodes added that the National Engineering Products Company is virtually unregulated with no air quality permit and only a certificate of occupancy issued in 1971. The petition to support Ivy City residents in this fight for clean air is at empowerdc.org forward slash close NEP. Next, On the Ground's first science news minute is about cleaner emissions from cars. With most Western automakers focused on lithium-powered electric vehicles, 
Toyota, the world's largest auto manufacturer, recently committed to include hydrogen-powered vehicles in a major announcement made by its new CEO, Koji Sato. This sets the tone for an alternative path for more sustainable technology automobiles in the very near future. For Underground Science and Technology Minute, this is Michael Byfield. And finally, in culture and media, Appeal Inc., which works to uplift black economic empowerment and the establishment of a black-owned credit union, celebrated its 10th anniversary on May 19th at a free community event here in D.C. Also, the D.C. Labor Film Fest is happening through May 30th at the AFI Theater in downtown Silver Spring, Maryland. And on Saturday, June 3rd, 6 to 9 p.m., will be a celebration for historian Gerald Horn and a party for his latest book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. And finally, President Biden is among the many lawmakers here in the nation's capital, expressing condolences on the death of rock and roll queen Tina Turner. The Biden statement said in part, quote, in addition to being a once in a generation talent that changed American music forever, Tina's personal strength was remarkable. Overcoming adversity and even abuse, she built a career for the ages and a life and legacy that were entirely hers, end quote. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iverum, and this is my third conversation with our geopolitical analyst, Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston, about his latest book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for continuing this conversation about this book. So we have started at the very beginning, uh, back in 1862, when President Abraham Lincoln signed a decree which is celebrated to this day in Washington, D.C., uniquely celebrated as Emancipation Day, of freeing all enslaved people in Washington, D.C. And we've gone up through the decades since that time, through the early 1900s. Last week, we talked about the Great Depression, the 1930s, and the, the ways that we know uh, police brutality, you know, police terror today had its roots back then or even before then when there was a large Black indigent population. The revelation really to me also about alley dwelling and the really ramshackle conditions that people lived in in alleys as opposed to on the sidewalks where we see unhoused people here today in the district and the roots of this type of impoverishment of people being denied jobs and housing um, often and obviously adequate health care and the types of human needs that we all deserve. So I want to go forward to the the 1960s, we we kind of we did some bridge work uh, through the decades last week. But the title of your book is Revolting Capital, and that title comes from 1967, 1968, leading up to the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King and uh, the revolt that happened that day. I want to read a little bit from the, the beginning of chapter 20. And you say, in April 1968, revolt inexorably arrived in the district. The ostensible trigger for this mass revolt was the assassination of Dr. King, but keen readers thus far should be able to discern other causes, including police terror, dilapidated housing choices, an unpopular war that was dispatching the flower of youth across the Pacific, and the general crisis of everyday living embodied in this town's perennial, starkly malignant racism. The detonation of 1968, quote, forever changed the trajectory of the city, end quote, according to one study. Further, unlike 1919, it demonstrated what occurred in the district, unlike many other cities, was of national, if not global, significance. So I thought we should just jump off there and just talk about the myriad causes that brought Washington, D.C. to the point of revolt in April of 1968. And I think you know that there were 7,500 people arrested uh, during the uprising after King's murder. There certainly were, and not to mention people who were shot and injured or beaten by out-of-control authorities. But keep in mind as well that this is not happening in any everyday U.S. city. Uh, this is happening in the capital of empire. And as those remarks you read suggested, the empire was then enmeshed in a brutal, if not genocidal war in Indochina. 
And so with the surging of thousands into the streets in anger and fury and protest about the assassination of Dr. King, you had the traffic jam from hell. Washington probably hasn't seen a traffic jam before or since like the ones witnessed in early April 1968. Therefore, those seeking to drive, for example, from the Pentagon to the White House to confer about bombing campaigns in Indochina were stymied. Keep in mind as well that- Talk about that. Well, talk about the traffic jam you're talking about. I don't think people know what that means, just in terms of people out on the streets, on their foot, on in cars or what? Well, it's all of the above. And, and plus, it's the fact that many of the folks who are working downtown in Washington at that particular moment actually lived in Maryland or Virginia, and they were frightened about what was going on. So they were hopping in their cars, recalled that mass transit then was not as developed as it is today. And with all of these people having the same goal and ambition, which is scurrying across the border to Maryland or to Virginia as soon as possible, that inevitably created a traffic jam. Not only that, but communications were disrupted. I'm speaking of the fact that there was a lack of interoperability between the communications devices of the Metropolitan Police Department and their counterparts in Maryland and in Virginia that hampered the ability to dispatch forces to hotspots. Then there's the perennial issue in the United States of America, which is the proliferation of arms. In fact, Black people were probably more armed then than they are now. Recall that after 1968, you had serious attempts at gun control in Congress, specifically and precisely because it was targeted at the fact that Black people were seen as vectors of controlling a significant arsenal. And as well, recall that in the introduction, I talk about an individual who confesses that he had access to dynamite and he was trying to uh, blow up uh, some enterprise that he felt had done him wrong pre-April 1968. So this is obviously a prescription for citywide breakdown, which was precisely what was unfolding in April 1968. Were there also vigilantes in terms of, of people coming in from neighboring states with guns to act as kind of militia? Well, sure. Vigilantism is a perennial issue in the United States of America. And recall as well that this was a different historical moment in the United States. In this particular period, there were numerous bombings that were taking place on a regular basis. Recall that even in sunny, otherwise placid Santa Barbara County, California, the Bank of America branch near the campus of the University of California, Santa Barbara, was bombed repeatedly. And this was not unusual. 
Then speaking of vigilantes, you have these right-wing militias such as the Minutemen, not to mention that the American Nazi party had its headquarters right across the water in Virginia. It was frequently spotted on the streets of the district. Keep in mind as well that the Black Panther Party, which was then quite prominent, was also present in the District of Columbia at that particular moment. So you had a number of armed forces, a number of armed bodies. And speaking of which, I haven't even talked about the fact that the National Guard were ultimately dispatched to the district. I haven't mentioned the fact that the firefighting force in the district was besieged. And recall as well that the firefighting force was particularly despised by a number of residents of the district because even more so than the Metropolitan Police Department, it was quite slow and lethargic to desegregate. Uh, If it's any consolation, the district was not unusual in that instance. You had a similar pattern of lethargy of desegregation in New York City and Los Angeles as well. And I think it has something to do with the fact that firefighters spend quite a bit of time in the firehouse on a social and intimate basis. And the firefighters were unwilling to accept Black firefighters in their midst. And that meant that when they went out on calls during these fraught moments of April 1968, Uh, they were not necessarily greeted with open arms. Instead, they were greeted with the rocks and stones and broken bottles, uh, which then allows fires to spread, uh, fires coming quite dangerously close to the White House, in fact. And so this was a very uh, tense moment uh, for the United States of America. Now, leading up to this, there had already been really fraught battles around home rule. I remember reading at some point in the book about just these, you know, letters from the population, someone actually getting up in Congress, you know, with a like a Hitler salute, you know, opposed to what they saw as, you know, black majority rule in the district. And it just occurred to me that 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 happened before King's assassination. And so you had that fight, you know, combined with the emergence of, like you said, uh, a growing uh, presence of the Black Panther Party. And of of course, for this book, the radicalism at Howard University, we have to bring in the presence of people like Stokely Carmichael and Amiri Baraka. So why don't we just talk about some of the things that led up to this moment also? Well, the man then known as Stokely Carmichael was targeted, to put it mildly, by the authorities, not only by the local authorities, but by the national authorities as well. As I suggested, I believe, last week, there is evidence to suggest that the U.S. intelligence agencies, which supposedly are not supposed to operate on this soil, were doing precisely that. They're supposed to be operating abroad. They're supposed to be mucking up regimes and governments and activists abroad, not necessarily right here at home. And Mr. Carmichael, subsequently known as Kwame Ture, 
was a particular target. Uh, he was being bird dog relentlessly uh, during that time. And I don't find it accidental that it was shortly thereafter that he decided that the better part of wisdom was to leave the United States for an extended period of time. Because otherwise, uh, what befell Malcolm X assassination, what befell Dr. King assassination, could easily have befallen a Stokely Carmichael. Because as I suggested uh, perhaps recently, he was a major activist in terms of the desegregation of Maryland, uh, which was a very stubborn target, particularly along Route 40, where you had African and Caribbean diplomats who would be driving from Washington, their embassy or consulate up to United Nations to New York, but were not able to necessarily eat at restaurants or stay at hotels, et cetera. And what's interesting is that a number of Howard students, since they knew that the United States was quite sensitive to this segregation and discrimination and white supremacy against diplomats, they would begin to dress up in African robes, even if they were Black Americans, and speaking in what they considered to be West African accents <laughs> in order to get a meal at some uh, restaurant uh, in Maryland, for example. And of course, as I might have suggested before, the State Department then came up with the idea of trying to have these African and Caribbean diplomats wear emblems or badges on their lapels, just like you see members of the House or Senate, when they go into the Capitol, they have emblems that identify them as members. But of course, uh, you had the Howard students who came with the, up with the bright idea of perhaps counterfeiting uh, the possibility that this would ensue, and therefore the idea was dropped. So Washington was going through a wrenching period, basically before April 1968, and things got even more complicated in April 1968. Right. Well, there are so many threads kind of leading to that moment after the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King. And this is the, I don't know if nexus is the right word, but this is certainly an epicenter for this book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C. This is my third conversation with Professor Gerald Horn about his latest book. And Gerald, there's a part in the book where you talk about workers who are uh, beginning to have access to jobs that they hadn't had access to before. You know, things that people take take for granted now, that there were factory jobs, there were all types of employment, just basically close to Black people. And there was a real big debate among activists, liberals, people in the NAACP perhaps, versus people who are on the true left about, you know, what are we struggling for? So I was noticing that at some point there seemed to be a real big debate about are we fighting for the majority of working people in our community to get these jobs, to have access to a, a quality life, or are we obsessed with this issue of Black first or getting Black people in these high positions? And I think, you know, probably 50 years later, we can see the people pursuing that latter strategy have put us all in a world of hurt because, you know, that wasn't necessarily progress for everyone, but just putting 
a person in the high position so that they can therefore just serve the empire as opposed to people in our community. So how did that play out around this time? Like what were some of the organizations or individuals that you saw as significant on either side of that debate? Well, this plays out particularly within the ranks of the NAACP. What I mean is that there was an internal struggle within the NAACP nationally and in the district as to what class force would be dominant or hegemonic. What happens is that with the Red Scare, the U.S. authorities put their thumb on the scales in favor of the middle class and elite forces within the NAACP. Recall that during the Red Scare, there is a systematic purge, if not destruction, of left-leaning unions then affiliated with the left-leaning CIO or Congress of Industrial Organizations. I'm speaking of everything from cafeteria workers to elevator operators to office workers, for example. And with the Red Scare, you saw that the middle class and elite forces within the NAACP were able to emerge triumphant. Now, on the one hand, this did contribute to the erosion of Jim Crow. That is to say that now one could go into department stores and shop, which was not necessarily the case during the Jim Crow era. Uh, Just as a footnote, if you look at old photographs from Black America during the Jim Crow era, you see people oftentimes in ill-fitting garments because they were not able to try on clothes before they bought them or return them uh, if they did not fit well. And so what happens with the 1950s and the erosion of Jim Crow is that you have many Black people who gain access and entree into restaurants and hotels from which they were previously barred. But because there was a cap on wages and oppressive working conditions continued to persist, uh, this meant that some did not have the wherewithal to pay the bill at that restaurant or hotel as they were about to check out. And that is the sad irony of desegregation, not only in the district, but one could say nationally, which then brings us to the Marion Barry era. I don't think we've talked about him uh, that much during our conversations. Recall that he had roots in Mississippi, uh, migrates to Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, where he becomes part of the shock troops of the anti-Jim Crow movement, speaking of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, leapfrogs from there to Washington, where he begins to organize unemployed Black young men in particular. Uh, This serves as a foundation for his running for office. He's elected as mayor, as you know, he oftentimes referred to himself, as you might recall, as mayor for life. And the historic significance of Mayor Barry was helping to desegregate the workforce in the District of Columbia. The workforce of the federal government One can make an argument that it still has a certain kind of segregation and 
the district workforce mirrors that, if not worse. That began to change under Mayor Barry, but obviously a change oftentimes brings turmoil and pain, at least to some, uh, which of course leads to that unfortunate episode that I'm sure I don't have to remind your audience about uh, where he is caught on camera supposedly uh, smoking a controlled substance, which leads to a term in prison, but then does not wreck his political career to the consternation of some as he returns to high office upon leaving prison. And in some, that is part of the story that is told in this book. Well, we certainly couldn't talk about Washington, D.C. without talking about Marion Barry. And I guess a lot of people don't know his roots in SNCC. You know, we are fortunate, blessed here in Washington, D.C. to have the SNCC Legacy Project. And they don't let us forget his connections to SNCC, the connections of the late Harry Belafonte to SNCC, and really the importance of that organization here during that time. Uh, in the little bit of time we have left, I don't know if you want to go forward and just kind of give people a sense of how that those changes, you know, 50 years ago, continue to reverberate in terms of the, the district desegregating, providing more opportunities for people, the, the whole movement to provide human needs around housing and, and, and employment and I don't know if you want to go forward in time or just talk about the stay right there in the 60s and just talk about how that era kind of resolved itself, you know, because by the 70s, you know, the so many of the people who took that latter route of of just trying to be have black black faces in high places, you know, they had already turned their back on you know, so much of what was being fought for, for, for the masses of black people. And so I'm just not sure whether we should go forward or just kind of wind up there in the sixties. <laughs> well, let, let's do both. Let's connect the past to the present. What I mean by that is I dare say that not only Washington, but the nation as a whole and black America in general has yet to recover from the ravages of the red scare. That is to say the weakening of left-leaning trade unions, the United States trade union density, that is to say membership is at a record low level. It's even lower in the private sector than it is in the public sector, but the public sector, that is to say the government sector, is nothing to boast about either. And I would say as well that the kind of repression that was so prevalent during the Red Scare press, uh, period has yet to dissipate. It takes various and diverse forms, not only in terms of police terror, but also something that I think activists need to focus on a bit more is the role of the U.S. attorney in Washington at one time, particularly when you had Republican presidents, you would have these uh, hard-bitten conservatives like Joseph de Geneva, for example, who went on crusades against Black leadership. It's not only Marion Barry who served the term in prison. Recall what happened to his former SNCC comrade, Ivanhoe Donaldson, who was known as one of SNCC's intellectual leaders. 
uh, who was persecuted tremendously uh, by the US authorities. And I think a major lesson that I would like to like to have readers take away is to not to see Washington as just another city, but to see Washington as a strategically important city. And any who are sincerely concerned with radical or even progressive transformation in the United States of America has to focus on Washington, DC. I think it's inescapable. It's no accident that I conclude the book with yet another revolt, but a perverse revolt, speaking of January 6, 2021, when the insurrectionists tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, they suspected, they felt that if they could do so, uh, they could grab the reins of empire. Implicitly, if not explicitly, they were recognizing the strategic importance of Washington, D.C. And likewise, recall that I've been stressing all along in our conversations the ultra-surveillance of Washington. But obviously, January 6th suggests that that surveillance disproportionately afflicts some and turns a blind eye to others because it did not take an oracle or a seer to suspect that January 6, 2021 would involve a, some sort of uprising. But that fundamental lesson seemingly escaped all of these intelligence agencies, the Metropolitan Police, the Capitol Police, the Park Police, and these uh, other gumshoes who parade around as being authorities and enforcers of the law. And so once again, a lesson to take away from this book is trying to develop organizations that can push back against this repression, that can push back against this surveillance, which will then create favorable conditions for progressive movements and indeed radical movements to flourish. Well, that is such a good point to end on. When you talked about the persecution, I, I couldn't help but think about the Omali Yashatela and the African People's Socialist Party and their recent indictment by that same attorney general, right, Justice Department, mm -hmm. and uh, claiming that they have ties to Russia just because they want to be citizens of the world. They've been fighting the same fight for 50 years stemming from the same era that you're talking about, actually, and, you know, have demonstrated here that you have something about the Black March on the, on the White House, you know, every year here. And they have a presence here in Washington, D.C. They have a Black, the Black is Back Coalition, which has a regular gathering here. And to me, is very much connected to the era you're talking about, because that's when their organization started. And now, 50 years later, they want to somehow connect them to Russia when it has nothing to do with, with their fight for the liberation of Black people. Anyway, uh, I want to remind everyone that the discussion that we're having is about Gerald Horn's latest book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. Well, we're in a very important moment right now. I was reading an article in the paper the other day that suggested that cable television might not survive the decade because of cord cutters. I think it's also a reflection of the fact that audiences far and wide 
are upset with the political line coming out of MSNBC and CNN and Fox, among others. Right. And that suggests the importance of Pacifica, which, quite frankly, believe it or not, uh, may still be standing after MSNBC is part of history. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analysts. You know him, Professor Gerald Horn, the professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. And this is his latest book, Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C. I know it's more than 40 books, but which number is this? Well, that, that's close enough. <laughs> okay, more than 40 books. All right. Okay, uh, thank you, Gerald. Thank you. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show, and we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week, please support us on Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check. All that information is there. But please, please support us. I want to thank our supporters on Patreon so much. And for those who are already supporting, if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up, we need the support. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org. Thank you.
Hello, uh, my name is Jordan Farrell and I am the chairperson of Anakbayan USA. And I am so happy and proud to be here at the press conference calling for justice for the DC4, celebrating the victory that the prosecution has declined to press charges against the DC4 because we know that activism is not a crime. Marcos was in DC uh, from May 1st or June 30th to May 4th um, to really have stronger commitments to the US, to have stronger commitments to neoliberalism and stronger commitments to exploiting the Filipino people wherever they are. What came out of those meetings were also stronger military presence in the Philippines that will really um, be a detriment to the, the land, the resources, and our people. He supposedly secured $1.3 billion in foreign investments, which will plunge us deeper into subservience of the of foreign corporations, foreign powers, um, and will really continue the legacy of the Marcos family in selling out the Filipino people. And he will continue to do this as he will return in to the U.S. in September, in November, in San Francisco for the Asia Pacific Economic Corporation, which Anak Bayan uh, condemns. We uh, are we are so angry that Marcos has the audacity to be able to um, to continue to sell up the people in all types of forums. We are here today to stand with the DC4 though in their courageous protest on May 2nd and celebrate the victory and the justness of our cause. This form of protest against the fascist US Marcos II regime and his cronies was so righteous that the US state could not even justify moving forward with charges. And the DC police and US state has historically declared its alliance with bureaucrat capitalists in the Philippines, but it knew that it had no teeth to repress our activists because of the truth that they stood up for. They couldn't justify pushing forward with the charges because our cause in itself is just, and the imperialists could not protect Marcos from the truth of his own crimes. So we're here to say as Anagbayan that we will not be intimidated and we will not back down. We stand with our activists by the DC4 and continue to condemn their arrests and assert that Marcos is the real criminal the arrest of the DC4 itself and the villainizing of them that we've continued to see online for simply telling the truth is not unique to the National Democratic Movement. There have been countless examples of Filipino critics of the administration being red tagged, being tortured, being disappeared and being killed. And though we don't face the same uh, uh, consequences here in the Philippines, the fascist Philippine state still does all it can to repress the movement from growing, and it can reach that level, even here in the belly of the beast, as witnessed by the DC4. So we uh, celebrate and deem the DC4 as courageous and brave and a valiant example of what Filipino revolutionary youth should be here in the States because we will never back down when the number one criminals in the Philippines show their faces. Anakbayan USA believes that it is our duty to fight wherever Filipinos are displaced to, wherever there is exploitation, wherever there is oppression. And we will continue to agitate, organize and mobilize no matter what charges they put against us, 
no matter what types of violences they try to push, we will continue to build the mass movement overseas for national dem democracy with a socialist perspective. That's, uh, we fight continuously and onwards for national sovereignty, national industrialization, and genuine agrarian reform. So again, mabuhay to the DC4 for asserting that the Philippines is not for sale. Join the National Democratic Movement. Join Anak Bayan. Laban Kabataan. That was Jordan Farallon, chairperson of Anakbayan USA, speaking at a press conference Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023 in downtown Washington, D.C. And that will do it for today's special episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our content and our past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter or on patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. The music we play this hour included Proud Mary and The Best by Tina Turner. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.